Christianity is worth defending. Just because we believe it doesn't mean that somebody in our audience does. And I think that as we're communicating, um, apologetics doesn't save anybody. The Holy Spirit does. But it does get rid of the objections that are getting in the way of somebody believing. Well, hi. Welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 180. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice that you just heard is that of this week's guest, Dr. Bobby Conway. Now, he and I have a good discussion about the role of apologetics in our preaching. But more than that, what what Bobby is most excited about is actually evangelism and seeing people encounter Jesus, uh, perhaps even for the first time. And this like evangelistic fervor and passion that he has led him in his younger years to visit old folks' home and, and set up these kind of impromptu church services there, to evangelize on college campuses, to be a guest preacher in country churches, um, and then also to study apologetics and theology. All of this has to do with his desire to see the gospel of Jesus go far and wide into the hearts and minds of men and women. So this conversation was inspiring to me, and I hope that it's helpful for you. I'm going to get out of your way and introduce you to Dr. Bobby Conway. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm here with Bobby Conway. Good morning. And, and, and actually, here's a question. Are you Dr. Bobby Conway yet, or are you, is that still pending? <laughs> no. Uh, funny enough, yeah, I actually just uh, earned my second doctorate degree. I finished that up at the University of Birmingham in England. So it was a PhD uh, in philosophy of religion where I developed a moral argument from guilt. So I'm glad to be done, Mike, with school. Uh, I've been in school, literally, uh, it feels like my whole life. Uh, I'm 48, and I I can't even tell you uh, how thankful I am. I did a THM, which was a four-year master's degree. Then I did a doctorate of ministry. That took me about four years. And then the PhD took me about seven years. So you can imagine what a relief it is to be done. Yes. So yeah, dude, I'm Dr. Squared, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A PhD and a D-min. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I knew that you were like currently working on, or the last time I checked, you were currently working on the PhD. Uh, but yeah. even if you weren't finished with that, you still were Dr. Bobby Conway. So, okay. Well, so now that we've gotten the, the credentials uh, out of the way. But just call me Bobby, man. Okay. We'll do. We'll do, Bobby. Um, so, Bobby. Um, yeah. we, we love to ask this question. It's a great kind of a, an opening way to, to get to know you and your story. Um, could you tell us about the first time that you like taught or preached the Bible? What was your first sermon like? You know, it's interesting. I, I've got to say, as a guy who grew up in California and never heard the gospel till I was 19, uh, when the gospel took root in my heart, uh, man, I just wanted to share with Jesus uh, people that I ran into, and I mm. found my heart swelling. And before I ever preached, uh, my story was, as I told uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, I said, I don't know how to explain this, but I feel like God has given me a call to teach. 
and preach his word. Mm. And the funny thing is, is I was such a partier when I was younger that I had a hard time stringing together a sentence. So I wasn't really sure how this preaching thing was going to work. And I went off to Bible college in Arkansas, where my wife was from, and I took a preaching class. Okay. And my first sermon uh, was from Isaiah chapter six, verses one to eight. And, you know, it was kind of like, I didn't even know how to pick a Bible college, Mike. This was like a traditional <laughs> Baptist Bible okay. college. I was such a fish out of water. Everybody was calling each other Brother Daryl and Brother Doug. And I'm like, just call me bro, Bobby. I have my, you know, my high top vans and my board shorts. Yeah. And uh, it was such a traditional culture. And uh, I had to wear this suit and tie and get up and uh, teach before this class. Um I had memorized my passage by accident uh, because I prepared so much hmm. to teach. Sounds and good. I remember, wow, uh, that was pretty rewarding. Uh, but yes, I can remember studying so much because you, you're scared to death to sure. teach and preach and, you know, you're, you're nervous. And, uh, you know, I got up and fortunately we were able to uh, have that videoed. And I would have been probably 23. So that's 25 years ago now, Mike, uh, from that first sermon onward uh, in my life. Okay. So Isaiah 6, right? Um, yep. Yeah. And do you think it went? Do you think it went well? Or I guess, what did your prof <laughs> say? Did your prof think it went well? And then what did you think? You know, I, I think that looking back, it's hard to remember exactly the words, but, you know, I felt like there was validation in the gift set. Um, you know, the thing about preaching, though, for me, even 25 years later, I'm my worst critic. So I, for some reason, uh, always can think of areas that I can improve, like, oh, I forgot to say this, or why did I say this, or, or why didn't I, uh, you know, just hold these words back or uh, there's always things that I'm self critiquing myself, but I think that that's how we get better as communicators as well. Like I'd hate to finish my message all the time, non-reflectively, because that's a great recipe for not growing as a communicator. Wow. Well, you know, Hey, this, that's a preview for the last question. I'm going to ask you at the end, how are you trying to grow even now? So mm -hmm. I believe that you probably have a good answer for that, <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave that until the end. That's a teaser, a teaser for yeah. that. So your first sermon was in kind of a preaching class, like, but when yeah. was your first, you know, I hate to say it this way, but when was your first real sermon? When were you unleashed on a congregation? Yeah. You know, the funny thing is too, like I, I was so burdened, Mike, to communicate that I went out and found my own, uh, preaching opportunities. So what I did is, um, I had a heart for the elderly. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I had to do a project at a convalescent home, and I wasn't a believer, and I would go over and connect, and I went back and over and over again, and there was this guy that I connected with, and you know, I would feed this dude Marlboro Red cigarettes, and we would just smoke cigarettes and play cards inside the convalescent home. Well, after I got yeah. saved, different world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a, oh, it's a different world. Yeah, he'd look at me, be like, "Smoke," and I'd be like, "All right, here, bro, we've passed your quota." But uh, <laughs> once I got saved, I uh, I went to 
a convalescent home and I asked if I could show up and preach and I would bring my jukebox and I'd go and I'd walk around the convalescent home and love on the elderly. And then I would preach and teach. And so that those were my first sermons in a convalescent home. Um, just talking to the elderly, sharing the gospel with them, playing hymns for them to listen to. And, you know, it's funny, Mike, I look back on that in some ways and I think it's kind of cool because I, I didn't realize, you know, that's not all that normal for, you know, 23 year olds in today's world hmm. to on their own initiative to go to an elderly home and go and shepherd them, love on them and preach to them. And I look back and just see that that was God's burden in my heart. And so that was pretty special. And the other thing that happened is the Bible college would get phone calls from different churches in need. So what my wife and I were doing is we were traveling around the state of Arkansas and we were preaching in these country churches, Mike. And, uh, you know, you'd be done and you get 50 bucks for doing a sermon or they might give you a book or they might feed you a meal. Uh, but in some ways it was just me getting an opportunity to see what the old preachers were doing. I mean, I was in that world and that was my whole foundation, preaching in yeah. old country churches, preaching in convalescent homes. And then I would also go out to the campus, Mike. I shared the gospel in personal evangelism with 50 to 100 people per week. And then I even would go out and stand on a bench and preach the gospel across the campus. And nobody would listen to me, but I was so burdened that I wanted people to hear Christ. So all that to say, there's opportunities out there. <laughs> wow. Thank you for saying that, you know, because... As we mentioned even earlier on, uh, I think before recording, you know, this podcast has listened to a lot of like, you know, young and new Bible teachers, people kind of waiting to be asked to yeah. preach on a Sunday morning. But I think I think you're right to point out there's opportunities all over the place. And, uh, you know, maybe with COVID-19 regulations or whatever, maybe you can't just stroll into an old folks home now, like maybe how you used to, <laughs> or, or who knows, right. who knows, different different countries have, have different regulations and stuff. But um, how, how, how did you get in on that? Uh, again, this is years ago, I know, but like, is that yeah. sort of thing still happening? You know, I don't know. It's funny. Okay. I was thinking about this recently. Like, you know, I still would have a heart in some ways just to have a, a ministry in a convalescent home. And I don't know what that is. Um, but if a local convalescent home would allow me to show up and, and preach and teach and love on the elderly, I really think for some reason I, I get a lot of joy out of that. Um, <laughs> I can remember one time, Mike, I was preaching and this lady was mean as a hornet's nest. I mean, you talk about a lady that you cannot imagine. So uh, you, she was just beating up on the men in there. And one day I'm preaching to the crowd and she stands up and she starts walking toward me while I'm teaching. And I think I'm thinking uh, she's going to slap me or something here. And she yeah. looks at me and she says, I want to get saved. And I thought, this is amazing. I was like, I didn't even know what to say. I looked at everybody as like, uh, she wants to get saved. So I stopped my message and led her to Christ. We celebrated wow. the moment and just went on with it. So, wow. you know, I'll tell you, Mike, you know, one thing about early on with preaching that is an insight to young expositors that I would say it's this, I, I struggled stumbling over my words and, um, I was so uneducated that I couldn't even pass a test to get in the United States military. I failed it three times. Uh, so 
the last thing I ever thought I would be is an academic. What I started doing is I started practicing being a communicator, not to crowds, but in one-on-one conversations. I started to practice catching my ums and all of my wasted terminology. And so when I was hanging out with people or when I went to small group, I started thinking, why in the world would I wait for that one hour moment that might hit six times a year when I'm sharing, they say, uh, you know, a male speaks about 10,000 words a day. Well, how could I practice being the best conversationalist? And so even when I was meeting with people one-on-one, I started trying to practice being articulate. And that started showing up on the radio. It started showing up uh, in communication and in preaching. It started disciplining my mind to really think tight because what can happen is we can waste a lot of words. And so I thought, I want to be a great communicator regardless of how many people I got. If I go spend time with somebody over coffee, I want people to feel like they are blessed by my words in the same way that I want a congregation to feel that. So that's what I'd say. <laughs> oh man, that's that is really great. Yeah, loving what you said about yeah the old folks home, and I, I wanted that to be kind of like a, a a little bit of a chide or a challenge to the mm. young people that are waiting to be asked. But you're you're right; it doesn't even need to be an old folks home. That every time we talk <laughs> is an opportunity to communicate and to improve in our yeah clarity. Here's here's kind of a story for the past couple of days for me. I had to to film a. Uh, a sermon for the Calvary Global Network um, Leadership Conference. I, I'm doing an online session, and I was told to send in a, a video that was about 30 minutes long. And so I recorded a, a sermon myself here in this very room, the church office, and it was 42 minutes. So that's that's too long. They asked for for 30 minutes. So on Monday, I came in with my wife, and um, we like looked at my notes and just kind of edited it down. Um, she was saying to things, you know, take that out, take that out. And it kind of killed me, but we edited it down and then she recorded and I did it all in 29 minutes and 17 seconds. And it mm. was basically, I didn't cut out a single good thing. Like it, it kind of felt like, <laughs> but, but she just kind of saying like, well, you said the same thing in this paragraph. You can say the same thing in that paragraph. Um, that doesn't need to be there. Realizing that I, I cut, I had basically 13 minutes of unnecessary stuff in that message. Mm. And then I wonder what about every other sermon? What about every other conversation? What about every other podcast? How, how much of this is just is just um, fluff? That's good, bro. Well, that being said, uh, why don't you give us some fluff about <laughs> ways that you've grown <laughs> or changed um, since since then? Like, are there kind of some moments in your teaching and preaching career where you've where you've said, you know what, that moment changed things for me, and I've I've never taught or preached the same since that moment. I don't know if there was an exact moment, but I would say if I started communicating, you know, at 23, Mike, it was probably somewhere around the age of 33 or 34 where I feel like I found my voice. Uh, That's to say the first decade of my preaching career, you're trying different things out. You're listening to different communicators that uh, you resonate with, you're, you're learning how to teach topically, expositionally, apologetically. Uh, you know, 
I had lots of different types of experiences. I, my wife and I spoke for almost 10 years for Family Life Today's Weekend to Remember the uh, marriage team. So we traveled around the country doing marriage seminars. And so all the way from putting together a class lecture, you know, a seminar on marriage practical tips to teaching two years through the book of Genesis or John to doing a topical message on how to tame your tongue, uh, you're, you're kind of trying all these things out and you kind of eventually realize over time where your sweet spot is. Yeah. And for me, it is, it is an expository preacher. My passion is to be able to just take people line by line through the word of God. Uh, you know, I'm a Dallas theological seminary grad. Uh, that's kind of their forte is just producing people who love to preach the word. I mean, that was the motto of the campus, preach the word. I love doing that. But what happens is I kept growing academically. So you have different types of preachers. And I would say probably my leadership style is a thought leader. So I try to bring different aspects to bear. When I'm teaching a text expositionally, I'm thinking about, well, how does this relate to today? And so I try to bring things out, um, you know, psychologically, philosophically, apologetically, historically. And so I'm trying to bring a lot of that together in one message. I think that my biggest model that if I was looking at a pastor, and I don't listen to a lot of pastors, honestly, I'm somebody who probably reads a lot more books and reads scholars uh, and people who might not even be really great communicators, mm. but their 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 content's good. But if I was thinking of a person that I love the way that they model presentation from the standpoint of content, not even a real dynamic person, but just packs a punch, that would be Timothy Keller. I right. think that yeah. he really offers a lot as it relates to. So sometimes you'll get people, they're really topical, but they're not textually rooted. Other times you'll get people, they're really textually rooted like a John MacArthur, but it's not real practical. Uh, I, I love what Keller's able to pull off where he can hit the psychology and the philosophy and the practicality, but it's deeply rooted biblically. So I think that there's a model there that I would see myself always wanting to learn from today. And that would probably be uh, where I'm at now, just constantly trying to grow, but feeling like you have to try different things out. Early on when I was preaching, I mean, my goodness, I was in Arkansas going to these churches. They were doing revivals. I mean, you could be hellfire brimstone, man. I get up and I just be bringing it, man. I'd be yeah. like, Jesus can change your life. Well, uh, I didn't realize that, you know, I needed to kind of dial that back. We got microphones today. I can just kind of talk. <laughs> yeah. So my yeah. style is a passionate conversationalist communicator. And I think that's important. And the way you get there, the way I got there is allowing people to assess you and trying your best to stay secure because that can bring up so much insecurities because when we teach, when we communicate, we all want validation. And some of the most difficult moments in my pastoral career were when I just felt like I fell on my face in the pulpit. 
Yeah. Well, uh, tell me more about that assessment process. So you, you mentioned like your preaching class, the professor gave feedback, but you've had assessment and feedback since then. How, how has that come up, come to pass? Absolutely. Uh, well, early on uh, in the first church that I planted, I had another teaching pastor that I shared the pulpit with, and he was a gifted communicator. He worked at Insight for Living with Chuck Swindoll, a gifted writer, and he was a Dallas grad, and we shared the pulpit. And so whenever uh, I taught, we would get together on the following Monday, Mm -hmm. and he would give his observations, and I would do the same for him. And we were brutal with each other, but we are also really trying to, to encourage one another. Yeah. But I think that that season, we, we worked together for about two years. Uh, he really helped me tremendously uh, through those observations. I had another friend that served as an elder that went to Dallas Seminary with me that helped me start the church. And he was really sharp philosophically. So he would give me a lot of insights early on. My wife has always uh, done that with me. You know what's interesting, though, about my wife? I would say in that first 10 years, she was much more verbal about offering her insights. But I think that she recognized that I found my voice somewhere along that way as well. But she offered me an insight even yesterday. She said, honey, because I've got ADD, she says, I think when you're on your ADD medicine, hon, you're getting too intense. And I just want you to be aware that you might be getting a little bit more amped up than you need to be. And I just want to build your awareness uh, for that. And, you know, I didn't like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. found myself, I just like, you know, I don't want, I, 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 even still, we've been married 25 years and I found myself going, I, you know, I don't appreciate you sharing that with me, <laughs> but I do deep down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that is, that's very valuable. And I'm, I'm encouraged to hear of more and more of people that are building this type of, um, welcoming assessments into their lives mm-hmm. or feedback, or that's, that's, that's very good. Uh, I think when I was a lot younger and and more insecure, I know my wife um, gave me some some feedback, and I I didn't like it one bit. And you know, I talked about you know, the Apostle Peter says that I'm bringing the oracles of God, and so like you wouldn't criticize <laughs> you wouldn't criticize God's word, would you? So you know, like like really stuff that I really actually regret it. Like it's not like thank you for the yeah. polite chuckle, but like that's that's a real bad thing of me. And um, and then now I'm just so glad that like that I do have somebody who I know is totally on my team, totally loves me. Absolutely. And, and she wants to shave 13 minutes off my sermons and she wants to help out. And we have these same, these same goals. So, uh, yeah. So I, so those are some significant kind of moments of growth or change or things that have added into your, your, mm-hmm. your preaching. You've mentioned that it, there's a couple different kinds of, of preaching or ways of preaching that you want to grow in, you know, like you mentioned kind of textual or topical, expositional. You mentioned um, teaching apologetically. Now, I know that's really important to you. It's kind of your your thing or one of your your things, the the one minute apologist. But I'm not an apologist, Bobby. Um, what what should I be doing um, in order to mm. address the apologetic issues of our day as mm. I you know preach the word? 
and work mm-hmm. my way through a passage, verse by verse, line by line. Um, what should an ordinary pastor do um, to address mm-hmm. these apologetic issues? You know, I think that I would want to share with the audience that, I, you know, I got into apologetics, which simply for those that might not be aware, uh, it comes from the Greek word apologia, it means to defend the faith. And so being able to provide a defense for the plausibility of Christianity, I got into it back when I was in college because I was doing evangelism. Hmm, okay. Uh, I didn't get into apologetics because I wanted to win arguments. I simply found myself being asked questions when I was sharing the gospel, 50 to 100 people a week that I didn't know the answer to. And I found it to become an incredible tool to be equipped when sharing the gospel. And so I've often said the person who says apologetics isn't important has just revealed how little evangelism they're doing. Because the moment we start doing evangelism, we'll realize, hey, it's helpful to have answers to questions. In fact, if I was being witnessed to by a Muslim and I started asking the Muslim questions and the Muslim, all he could do is just say, just believe. If he couldn't give a defense for why he believes in Islam, I would not be remotely interested. And so Hmm. I think that we need to recognize that if people ask us questions, it matters. So I started growing as an apologist out of an evangelism ministry. And frankly, it does grieve my heart to think how apologetics has scared people off because it has a reputation for kind of being just this intellectual world or Mm. arrogance. I think that our life is an apologetic, the way we live. I think that we can give a defense of our faith in our marriage. I think we can give a defense of our faith in our parenting. I also think there is doctrinal apologetics that we can offer people. So as it relates to me as a communicator, um, it it does come naturally. Uh, I found myself very frustrated, Mike, early on as a communicator when I would go to commentaries and they ignored the tough passages. Okay. And for me, I was the young guy that if I was in a church and a pastor conveniently skipped over an apologetic issue, what it would do to me is make me think, well, does, does he not know the answer or does he doubt that passage? So for, for me as a communicator, I love to be able to speak to the few percent that might be out there. Uh, hey, let me just take a, a, a parenthesis here and, and push park because there might be a few of you out there wondering about this passage. This is kind of tough and I don't want to skirt over it. Let's address that real quick. Uh, and I will I will take a few moments and I don't have to live there. Like I don't, when I'm teaching, I want the point of the text to drive what I'm doing. And I see myself as a tour guide when I'm teaching. My job mm, is wow. to help people to see the big picture. And as I'm helping people to see the big picture, I'm their tour guide but I'm pointing out some important details while keeping them focused on the big picture. And some of the details that emerge in teaching are apologetic issues. And I think it's this, you know what I love too about expositional preaching in particular through books. And I know that there's many ways that we can teach, but for me, um, I love that it forces me to deal with texts that I would maybe ignore Uh, Like, for example, 
here's something that I would say that's, that's important that a communicator do. I was teaching through Genesis 6, and I came to the sons of God and daughters of men. And I found myself scratching my head thinking, Lord, what am I going to do with this text? This is so bizarre. Uh, it is the most wheels off text. And so what we often do in communication, Mike, is we we study, we and then we we begin with our conclusions. But we rob our audience, we rob our congregation of the process and angst that we went through to get to the conclusions. And so when I taught Genesis 6, I stood up and said something like this. Have you ever read the Bible and found yourself scratching your head thinking, how in the world does this even remotely relate to today? So much so that you found yourself doubting it because you couldn't relate to the ancient day milieu from which it was written. Well, I got to be honest. That was my experience all week preparing today's message for you. I found myself thinking this passage is so unbelievably bizarre. But do you mind if I share with you today how I came to realize this message is bizarre, but true. And I had everybody on the edge of their seats going, yeah, tell me how you came to believe that this message is bizarre, but true. And I'd walk them through the apologetic issues. And so what did I get out of that? By the end, they knew the apologetic of the text. They knew that they could relate to their pastor. They knew that they weren't alone when they were struggling. And I think that that was the way. And so what I what we often do is we just start with the conclusion. Uh, this is the sons of God. Uh, these are the Nephilim, or this is the descendants of Seth. And we just kind of go on. But we rob people of all the angst we feel as preachers. So that's that's wow, that's great. I, I was on the edge of my seat too, I, and I, I was wondering. So what does he think about who are the sons of God? <laughs> but, um, but we'll have to download that, and we'll we'll do a link to that in the in the show notes. Um, okay, so so you mentioned that what initially brought you into apologetics was your evangelistic ministry, because people are asking mm-hmm. you questions, and you want to to have an answer uh, for that. And that, that, that's kind of the dialogical nature of evangelism. There's a, a real person who's talking back. It's back and forth. Now, yeah, now sermons are, are, are monological. Like we are, we're speaking and we're, we're setting the agenda and we're obviously under, the, under God and the, the text, that's the agenda, all that kind of thing. But, but we do have block out our three points, you know, or we do decide in advance what we're going to say. So since it is monological and we're choosing what to highlight, or as the tour guide, which I love that imagery, as the tour guide, we know what we're going to point out as we journey through the text. So could you maybe convince us that it's worthwhile including objections or including the, the doubts or the current questions in our Sunday sermons? Absolutely. I mean, Christianity is worth defending just because we believe it doesn't mean that somebody in our audience does. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we're communicating, um, apologetics doesn't save anybody. The Holy Spirit does. But it does get rid of the objections that are getting in the way of somebody believing. So, for example, Mike, you would think that if anybody would be against apologetic preaching, it would be Paul the Apostle who had the radical conversion on the Damascus Road. 
I mean, we think about Saul and he's literally got letters in hand to go arrest the church and the sovereignty of God just grabs a hold of him and saves him. And what if he took his salvific experience and imposed that on everybody else? Like, hey, God dealt with all my objections in a moment and he just dealt with me that way. But who is it that we see giving us the greatest model of apologetics in Acts 17 on Mars Hill? None other than the one who got the Damascus Road experience. And so if Paul recognized the importance of apologetics as the one who many people would dismiss apologetics in the name of the Holy Spirit can just radically save someone at once, how much more should we recognize the importance of that? So that's one uh, thing that I've thought about that should help us. Not only that, when we look in the Bible, think about Jesus, if we want an example. Here's John the Baptist, right? He's struggling on death row. His head's soon going to be on the chopping block. If anybody uh, you would think that would never have struggled with doubts, it's John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, the one who baptized him, the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, John the Baptist, right? I mean, bold. Obviously, he wouldn't have been on the cover of GQ, had some fashion issues, a weird diet. And so John John the Baptist is on death row. Well, what does he do? He sends his disciples off with his doubts, which, by the way, is pretty amazing. It tells us that he was an authentic, vulnerable Uh, leader. uh, You can uh, imagine his disciples going, "Um, excuse me, Mr. John, I thought you told us Jesus was the Messiah. Now you want us to go find out if he is the Messiah. Yeah, please do that. Anybody can be bowled out public when your head's about to be on a chopping block. You want to know for sure. Yeah. What John needed was apologetics to help him with his doubts. So he goes to Jesus. He sends his disciples. They carry his doubts to Jesus. Jesus is interrupted in a sermon. And what does Jesus do? He says, go tell John, the blind hear, the deaf hear, the lame are walking. In other words, Jesus gives an evidential answer to assuage John's doubts. Yeah. He, 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 he gives a text from Isaiah, and then the disciples are able to go back. We don't know if they got back on time. We don't get the rest of the narrative. But then what I love is then Jesus tells the, the, the crowd listening, who did you go out to hear? A wind blown and tossed, a reed blown and tossed by the wind? No, no one's been born greater of women than John. Right on the heels of John's doubts, Jesus pays pays the greatest compliment, and he uses apologetics to comfort uh, John. And so I would say we see apologetics all over the scriptures. And so anybody that dismisses it, well, Jesus was the great pastor, and he pastored John with evidential apologetics. So there I gave you two examples. One, an example of how doubts can help a believer with Jesus to how doubts can help non-believers on Mars Hill in Athens. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And yeah, Paul doesn't say, listen guys, just, yeah, just get on a horse and just, you know, just go, just start your journey. Eventually Christ, if he, if he wants you to be saved, he'll save you. Um, Exactly. Yeah. He, yeah, that's, 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 yeah. I love it. Now, now, so yeah, we're talking kind of on the apologetics end of things, uh, which I know is part of your vocation, but I also know that you, you are a church planter in the past and, and in the present. And so you're in the process now of planting Image Church. 
And um, I, I wonder, I've actually been asked to ask you this question. We have our Expositors Collective like Facebook group. And uh, when I said that I'd be interviewing you, somebody specifically asked this question. So you're starting a new church. You obviously want to like have a certain culture or values. Um, what's the way that when you're preaching to establish a new church, how is it different than preaching in a more, you know, 10 years down the right, down the line? I do think that we want to be attuned to the needs of the flock at hand. And so as a pastor, uh, we have to put ahead of maybe our own interests to learn a particular book of the Bible or a passage of the Bible. What does this flock need to mm -hmm. mature? So, yeah. for example, we are in our pre-launch stage. And I look at church planting kind of like the birth process. The conception stage is where God gives a visionary a vision to plant a church. Then, you know, you have the zygote that kind of goes through the gestation process and there's the first trimester and kind of somewhere along there because of technology, you can begin to look in there and see, oh, this looks like, you know, a child. You can see the shape of it. And then the second trimester uh, but you don't want to take the baby out of the womb prematurely because it stays in the hospital. And so my job right now as a pastor, I'm just kind of looking in the womb and seeing how healthy this, this baby's forming before we take it out of the womb and launch this thing. And so I have chosen to do a series called Movement, and I take a chapter a week from the book of Acts. And we're going through the book of Acts, and the purpose of this teaching project is I teach a chapter, uh, people are sitting at tables, and then I bring up discussion questions, and we discuss the chapter. And I'm extracting principles for what a church looks like. And I'm looking for those ancient principles. So it kind of looks like this then, Mike. Hey, in Acts chapter one, you know, we're told that the church is when it begins, it's going to be empowered and it's going to spread. We learn in chapter two of Acts that 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 a church that is born of God is empowered. Uh, and so what prepares us to be empowered? Acts chapter one, we pray. Acts chapter two, we look for God's power. Acts chapter two gives us principles of community, of doctrinal instruction, of generosity. Acts chapter three, we see that the church believes in miracles and is seeing miracles. Acts chapter four, we're seeing that the church is persecuted. Acts chapter five, we see that the church needs to be purged, Ananias and Sapphira. And, you know, it's an opportunity to teach, you know, let, let's not live with sin in our camp. Uh, Acts chapter six and seven, we're seeing, uh, you know, that you raising up leaders, deaconess, deacons, and if you want to call them that. So you're raising up leaders. So a church needs leaders to go forward. Acts chapter seven, we meet the first martyr. And so we need to be prepared to suffer for Jesus. Acts chapter eight, we see the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. We need gospel sensitivity to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Acts chapter nine, we see Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 10. So I'm pulling all these principles. And what I'm going to do at the end of Acts 28 is I'm going to be able to say, here are the principles of the church, and here's how it's going to flesh out an image church. And so that's what that looks like. And then when we launch, uh, then I will hopefully be prepared to take the church on another unique journey as their tour guide to help them to grow in the process. And so now we're out of the womb. 
Now I got to help them to grow in toddlerhood and infancy and adolescence before we plant again. Right. And, and so you mentioned like Genesis chapter six and the Nephilim, um, mm-hmm. that, that wasn't a, um, a, a vision casting, um, image church group. Is that, is that right? <laughs> I- That's correct. That would yeah. have been when I was teaching, uh, a, a church that I pastored in the past. Okay. Got uh, it. You know, we are kind of, <clears throat> and I got to admit, there are times when you're going through a, a chapter, um, that you might feel like this feels a little irrelevant. Yeah. And I think that, I think that we have to have the freedom as pastors to be spiritually in tune with where our flock is. And so I, while I'm going through a chapter a week, well, if something important comes up and I need to address it, then maybe I just address it. And then I cover two chapters the next week. Like, like as a tour guide, you have to sense what we really need to point out to people. And I think that can help us. And not only that, as a tour guide, if I'm leading a tour and some people are falling asleep on the tour, right? well, I might be really interested in these details, but if I want them to wake up, I'm not talking just to hear myself talk. I need to find a way to capture their attention to bring them back into the tour. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's, um, I'm glad to hear that. That's cool. That's really, that's really great. And I'd say, especially even, yeah, there's probably more to say about every single chapter of Acts, but yet you're, you're pulling out what, you know, to, to, to use the trimester analogy, you know, but like the right things in the umbilical cord to the right development, you know? So whereas with Acts chapter one, you could talk about, you know, who should the 12th apostle be and what's up with Matthias and what's up with this guy, you know, like that's interesting, but yet not really what the first gathering of a new church in formation needs to focus on. There's other more central focus yes. focus points. Yeah. So one of the things that I've done, Mike, is at the end of the chapter on some Sundays, if if the passage was flooded with apologetic issues, okay, yeah. what I do is that I teach the text and then at the end of the passage, because it's kind of organic, you know, we're at tables, I might just say, there's three apologetic issues that emerged that I don't want you to think that I walked over, but to not get derailed. But let me address those now. Uh, so, for example, in Acts chapter one, um, did Judas die by mm. hanging did or hanging did Judas or did die yeah. by fall, falling and having his bowels, uh, you know, opened up or, or his yes. uh, being disemboweled? Yes. And so I address that. Akeldama. Yes, exactly. Exactly. His innards coming <laughs> yeah. out. So, yeah. So, so you would address you would address the alleged inconsistencies between uh, the gospel accounts of his death and Acts chapter one's account of his death. Yeah, because here's the deal: when we don't address that, um, I mean, I feel a responsibility, that, especially when you've got, you know, high school kids listening to you teach. They're going to yeah. go off to college, and they're going to have professors that are going to point out the other account, mm. and so. What I want them to do, and I do feel confident that the students that have learned under me or pastors or or, or just lay adults, if they bump into objections, I'm confident because I tell them this all the time. Listen, you might forget some of the details I'm sharing right now, but it's okay. Here's what I know. You're going to know that there's answers hmm. to the questions that you might not be ready to meet because we're constantly addressing those. And so they'll have a confidence of sorts, even if they can't remember the answer right. and knowing that their pastor was confident yeah. and their pastor addressed that. And that's what I want to give to them. 
Well, as a, as a former teenager, I remember, uh, you know, attending church quite regularly and wasn't converted until, until later, um, in my teenage years. But so this is pre pre-conversion. It was, um, it was Holy Saturday. It was the, the night before Easter. And I knew we were going to church the next day. And I thought, you know, like this, I, I should read the Bible. And, um, I, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read all the, the resurrection accounts. And I, I was like, these don't match up. <laughs> these are yeah. this, how, how many women and how many angels noticing all of that and thinking, well, don't worry. You know, my parents are taking me to church the next day. I'll ask the youth pastor and I'm asking the youth pastor and he's like, you know, well, golly, yeah, that is strange, isn't it? <laughs> and he just shared with me like the, um, the astonishment that, well, you're right, Mike, those stories don't really add up. Well, we just got to yeah, have faith and we just got to trust. So I, 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 I was the, the youth pastor's mm-hmm. dream come true. Some kid on Easter Sunday being like, can you explain this to me? And he mm-hmm. just kind of scratched his head and was like, yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Wow. Mike, that's a powerful testimony, bro. And I mean, honestly, that's that's why we've got to do this. I mean, especially in today's age, uh, there's a lot of talk about deconstructing. Mm. And there's people we're hearing left and right, they're deconstructing their faith. Well, I think sometimes some things need to be deconstructed. Like you get in too tight of a denominational box and you get this long list of things you need to believe. Uh that can set people up for a lot of doubt and we might need to renegotiate our faith stance. Hmm, hmm. Uh, But some people are deconstructing so much that they're just walking away into progressive Christianity. And for me, frankly, I truly think a lot of people who ended up in progressive Christianity, they were in legalistic churches and had their pastors, maybe not devalued apologetics and philosophy they could have helped some of these people because I listen to the progressive talk and I think their arguments and objections to me, they just seem so weak. And it saddens me to think that you left based on that. I mean, there there's good answers. Now this is coming from a guy who was absolutely suicidal at a national platform as an apologist. Uh, I was pastoring a large church and I was doubting. I, I was doubting so bad. I ended up on an antidepressant. I was thinking about being at the bottom of a lake. Uh, I was in this for years. I was in utter angst, but God brought me through the dark night of my soul. I ended up writing my book, Doubting Toward Faith. Uh, And I wasn't doubting because I wanted to celebrate doubts. I was doubting because uh, I was reading so much that I couldn't process the questions that were being raised fast enough for every book I'd read to track down one doubt, I'd collect another 10 that I needed to read. And so I had to renegotiate my faith stance, but I'm so thankful that God brought me through without heading to progressive Christianity. And so that's another thought that I, I would just say apologetics has a way of helping us with doubts, but my journey went like this, Mike, Um, I I wanted to add two questions. What do I do with my guilt? And what's the purpose of life? Hmm. Both, I heard Greg Laurie preaching and the gospel settled that. So then that helped me to know the gospel. Then I went to Bible college to understand the gospel and to learn the Bible. And then I went and did a theology degree to help me to better understand uh, uh, the Bible. Then I did an apologetics degree to help me better understand the theology. Then I got a philosophy degree to better help me with my apologetics. Then I needed mystery again. 
And I needed to come back like the heart of a little child yeah. because doubt's not a human problem. Uh, right. I mean, or, or doubt's not a, uh, I mean, doubt's not a Christian problem. It's a human problem. Oh yeah. We all have it. Atheists, Muslims, Buddhists. But I just think that what happened to you, Mike's tragic. And that's why a lot of people end up in progressive Christianity. Pastors aren't willing to help people. And so good for you for staying and figuring. So what did you do? How did you find re- resolve? Well, I was on this horse on the way to Damascus and uh, the Lord just uh, knocked me <laughs> off and converted me. Um, well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I just thought, oh, well, this, this guy seems to be encountering the exact same issues that I am. And it seems that this, he hasn't really thought them through either. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was converted, I think, a couple of years afterwards and, um, yeah, encountered people that were a bit more thoughtful, um, encountered I, I, my my future brother-in-law. His name is Seth. He was a very good, thoughtful person. He was really good at listening to my rants and complaints and giving the answers that he knew, but he frequently would say, you know, let me, I'm going to go figure something out. I'm going to go look that up and come and get back to you. So that mm. was just, I think, a really honoring of me and my my objections or my my critique. But uh, yeah, I've, I've eventually harmonized the gospel accounts of, of the resurrection. <laughs> um, that's, that's no longer an issue. I shouldn't have left that hanging. Like, yeah, they're, they're harmonizable. They're, they're definitely harmonizable. That's right. But, you know, just for a, whatever, 14-year-old freshman flipping through a copy of the New Testament um, without study notes, it, does, it wasn't really showing those things. With my critical analytical mind, I wasn't able to see how the, the women and angels added up uh, without somebody kind of helping me out. Hmm. So on a preaching level, then I guess what we're getting at is the apologetics being brought into preaching and your youth pastor and lead pastors, people come with questions. Yeah. And if we're aware of that, this is what we can help people like yourself, people who are walking into progressive Christianity, the atheist or the skeptic that's out there. And I don't think we have to be arrogant in the way that we do that. We can just let people know that we recognize, and it shows an awareness on our part that we're aware that this is an issue and instead of just skirting over it as well. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe two questions. I'm, I'm kind of aware of the time. I don't want to, I don't want to use more of your time than you, than you committed to. So, but, um, so what should an Easter sermon be like then? Like uh, an Easter sermon often is kind of a, a celebratory tone, you know, Christ is risen, death is conquered, you know, and then often a gospel appeal, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus, uh, you know, uh, Romans 10, nine, all that kind of thing. But, but then should it also be, and here guys, here's a quick chart about how Matthew, Mark and Luke's account synchronize with, with John's account. Like in what way in a Easter Sunday, should there be that harmony? And then just because mm-hmm. I doubted that one Easter, that doesn't mean that the Sunday congregation is full of people that have timeline sure. idiosyncrasy questions. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's perfectly legitimate for su- Sunday uh, on Easter to be a celebratory time. And it should be. Um, it, you might not even get into the apologetics on that mm-hmm. particular Sunday. Yeah, It might just be a particular year you decide to give uh, reasons uh, historically that Jesus rose from the grave and the objections that people have tried to raise to get around that. Um, it could be that you never do that on a Sunday morning, uh, but you might be equipping people 
in your small groups by giving them this information as well. So there's lots of ways that we can equip people. But I do think it's important that that every Christian, somewhere along their sanctification process, should understand the evidence for the resurrection and the objections that people try to bring against it. Because Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. So like this past week, I was witnessing uh, to a deist that I struck up a conversation with. Actually, he struck up a conversation with me. And I started talking about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, You know, interestingly enough, I mean, one a perfect example. He said, you know, one of the reasons I struggle with Christianity is because the the eyewitness accounts weren't written until hundreds of years later. Hmm. Well, probably a lot of Christians wouldn't really know what to say to that. But I was ready to say that's actually not the case at all. Uh, Every book of the New Testament was at least complete by AD 90. And some scholars would say finished before AD 70, which you're only talking two generations after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not only that, in Acts chapter 15, Paul talked about the resurrection, uh, saying 500 people saw him, some of which are still alive. And so all of a sudden, the game changed in the conversation. He didn't convert, but... I was ready to talk to him, and it was exactly the thing we're talking about. That's a one-on-one thing to help, but that can help even on a Sunday morning in Easter. What are we doing? Okay, if we're going to preach apologetically, I think that we are anticipating people's objections. And we're not looking to just force apologetics into our teaching, but we are asking, is there an apologetic moment? So let me give an example. If somebody's teaching Genesis 22 about Abraham offering up Isaac, a lot of ways that that's done in the church is, man, isn't this incredible? Look at Abraham's faith. He went to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. Okay. If you're churched, that might sound really like motivating. Yeah. But if you're Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens sitting in the audience, you're thinking that sounds cruel. Yeah, yeah. And if if you're me, you might be thinking, okay, well, what would you do if somebody showed up and said, God gave me a, a vision and told me I need to go sacrifice my child? Well, yeah. I don't know how to get around it. I think we've got to address the apologetic issue. So here's what I'll say. I say something like this. Larry King, by the way, used to do Larry King Live on CNN. And he would ask people, he could never believe in a God who asked a father to sacrifice his son. Okay, so here's how apologetics can help, Mike. I would want to say, I totally get it. Like the passage seems wheels off. And if somebody came to me saying that they felt like they need to sacrifice their child, I'd call the police. How do we square a loving God's heart with this passage like this? God knew Abram was raised in Ur of the Chaldeans in a polytheistic world where people sacrificed to the gods their children. And they saw the greatest way to demonstrate their faith to their gods was through offering their child up. So what was God doing when he asked Abram to sacrifice his child? He was meeting Abram where he was. And where Abram was is he had an understanding that child sacrifice was a great way to please God. So 
when he asked him to sacrifice his child, Isaac, what does God do? He stops him at the moment when it's about to happen and say, no, don't do it. As if to say, I'm not like the other gods. It was an apologetic against the polytheism from which he was raised in. And he would learn he's not like the other gods. He doesn't permit child sacrifice. And so basically the whole story is not about God asking Abraham to sacrifice his child. It's about how God is going to prevent him from doing it to show him that he's not like the other gods. And you see, here's the here's how, that was apologetics right there. Now, people who are listening in the audience who struggle with a God like this, they're thinking, wow. And so then the apologetic is this. God meets us where we're at in order to bring us to where we're at, to where, to, in order to bring us to where he's at. Hmm. So that means when we're looking at the Bible, the Bible land will seem strange and bizarre to us yeah. until we understand that God sets a sacrificial system up. That's because that's what they knew. And so God meets them where they're at, and he utilizes the culture in their ways in order to bring them to where he's at. And if we can see that kind of stuff, I think that it becomes powerful material for people to lose their objections and believe in God. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and then considering how the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.32 he speaks about God being the one who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all as well. That would be the only child sacrifice that would happen that it would point to. Yeah, but yeah, Abram's son was spared, but God's son was not spared. Um, and That's so right. but kind of in the like Christocentric preaching circles of, of which I run um, quite heavily, I drink from those fountains deeply. Um, maybe we would preach, you know, Genesis 22, Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and then from there leap to Golgotha and and speak there about Romans 8:32 and you know but ultimate Christ is the ultimate sacrifice but you never want to skip that middle piece that you talk about you know the you know is anyone like struck by how bizarre this is um you know can you imagine yeah Richard Dawkins take on this um so that's yeah. that's that's very good so we we want to I think go towards that gospel but don't just hopscotch straight to the gospel over the the objections and the other thing too you have is that's a perfect insight. And another way that this you can deal with that text is it's called divine command theory. But you have some people um, would just say God just commands whatever God commands. And so like the ancient Euthyphro dilemma in Plato's Republic. So here's where philosophy can come out. Yeah. Is something good because God wills it or does God will it because it is good? Well, if something is good because God wills it, then goodness is arbitrary. Well, this is the approach that a Muslim would say as it relates to Allah. Allah can ask us and command us to do whatever, and the, it's still good because Allah commands it. And if Allah commands us to sacrifice our children, it is good only because Allah's good, and whatever Allah commands, it is good. So is something good because God wills it? Or someone could say, you know, is it good in and of itself? So is something good because God wills it or does God will it because it is good? Well, yeah. if it is good, then goodness exists independent of God, like Platonism. And so this is where you have moral Platonism. So God's trying to conform to some Platonic moral abstract value. So you can shoot both those down, but Soren Kierkegaard 
fell into what I would say looks like Allahism. The Dutch philosopher, he talked, he was the existentialist, right? You just kind of cross your fingers and you take the leap of faith and you believe. So when you come to Genesis 22, Kierkegaard wrote about that. And so you take this existential faith, the leap, I can't understand it, but God's good, divine command theory, he commanded it. And so he talked about this idea of the teleological suspension of the ethical. So God suspends the teleos, kind of the purpose of what this ethical thing is, and you take an existential leap of faith. Well, I don't think God commands something because goodness is arbitrary. I don't think God commands something because he's trying to conform to good. God commands something because he's good. Goodness flows out of his narrative or his nature, and that's how you split the horns of the dilemma. So I gave another way of looking at this philosophically. Now, a lot of people would have glass in their eyes listening to that probably in the pews, but it just goes to show how it's been dealt with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hey, so we've talked for a long time, longer than we intended. You're just so interesting. <laughs> and um, <laughs> at the beginning, at the beginning, I said that I was going to ask the final question and I, I teased the final question. And I know that, you know, if people's eyes glazed over, over the teleological argument, they're, they're going to dial back in for this one. How are you trying to improve, Bobby? I've been preaching for 23 plus years and I, I, I know that you still want to keep growing. So what are you currently trying to get better at? I think what you're doing, Mike, is editing, you know, out unnecessary language. Hmm. Um, I think that constantly trying to ask myself, what do they really need to hear? What information is essential uh, is something that I, I always have to work on because I can geek out uh, on information. And my wife has to, she'll say, honey, you can really you can get into the weeds like no one's business. And I have to constantly remind myself that everybody's not interested in mm. some of the things that I'm not interested in. Yeah. But here's, here's the other thing though. We have to resist the temptation of believing that we have to put the cookies on the shelf so low that we don't stretch our people. Because remember Jesus, I think Jesus purposely taught a little high because he had his disciples coming up to him afterwards, scratching their head, and they were looking to clarify, hey, Jesus, you were saying, uh, what did you mean by that? Well, obviously, hmm. he spoke at a level that they didn't grasp. So what was he doing? He saw that speaking a little bit over people's head at times was a way to make disciples because he would say, to you, the kingdom of heaven has been given. Yeah. Why? Because many people just walk away. They're content not to ask follow-up clarifying questions. I think as pastors, we can really find our hungry disciples when we go a little high sometimes, right. when people come up to us and say, can you please clarify? So resist the temptation to try to be so seeker light that you don't stretch your people, hmm. but then resist the temptation to stay so deep in the waters that people never feel like they're having the enjoyment of learning. Our job's not to impress them with our brilliance because people, we can teach so high that people, they leave, they don't learn. The only observation is, is that we're learned. And that can't be the only observation. So those are some things I'm trying to, what do I really need to say? And then secondly, um, 
just being a self-critic of myself. I'm also trying to teach shorter. Because I do pack some depth into my teaching, uh, people, it's kind of like if somebody's, invite someone over for dinner, um, do you want to stuff them or would you rather want them to leave hungry for a little more? Mm. I think in preaching, we're stuffing people sometimes. I would rather people be hungry for a little more. So I'm trying to discipline myself at this stage to about 35 to 37 minutes. It used to be 50 to 55, 58 minutes. Okay. Well, you know, your first, your first thing there, it reminds me of a quote from Brian Chappell. He says that excellent preaching makes people confident that biblical truth lies within their reach, not beyond their grasp. So yeah. that there is it's that good. it is graspable, but then maybe that it does involve a little bit of reach. That there is, yes. yeah, like if, if if God is God and we are created, though we're created in His image and likeness, He probably knows more than we do, and He's giving concepts that don't come naturally to us. Uh, mm-hmm. So there, there should be those, yeah, those reaching, those learning moments in every time someone encounters the the Word through the Scriptures. But, Absolutely, uh, and, and it, was it Augustine, or was it, or is it attributed to him? The Bible is like a there's like a pool with a shallow end that children can splash around in, but also the deep end where the elephants can swim. Was that Augustine or somebody else? I haven't heard that illustration, but that's actually really good. I like the the metaphor. Oh well, it was actually it's actually me. I just know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rick Warren. I love what Rick Warren says. You know, he says like the first time you quote someone, you're like. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, uh, the second time you quote somebody, someone said, yes. and the third time you quote someone, I've always thought. As a, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was either yeah, it was either Augustine of Hippo or Mike Neglia. One of those said that. But yeah, there's the, it the, was the deep, Mike yeah. Neglia. Yeah. <laughs> well, on on that. So 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 briefly, how can people get in touch or? I, I imagine you're probably not as flexible to be able to come and to speak on a Sunday morning anymore. You have you have other commitments, but are you available to be booked to do like apologetics workshops? Is that something that you are still doing and traveling? Yes, absolutely. Uh, people can go to my website, uh, one, um, one minute apologist.com. And, uh, there's a place where they could look, uh, to have me come out and speak, um, uh, for sure. So, uh, you know, an apologetics workshop, uh, evangelism workshop, any of that kind of stuff. I'm happy to dialogue, uh, preaching a message on a Sunday night or uh, some Sundays could work, but uh, I'm having to be much more guarded now because I'm back in the pulpit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's excellent. Well, and, and you're still doing uh, pastor's perspective. Is that right? I sure am. Yeah. I get to do that. Love working with pastor Brian Broderson. Uh, just one of my favorite people on planet earth. I uh, just love and admire him so much. And so he's a great friend and mentor, and I'm just thankful to serve with him uh, at that table. Yeah, I, I feel the same, but he doesn't let me on that show very often. So <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, but I, I, I also love that man very much. Well, anyway, um, I hope that uh, this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective help you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. So thanks again, Bobby. You bet. Thank you, Mike. Wow.
Wow. Well, thanks again, Bobby, for uh, such a great conversation. Slightly longer than most of our episodes here on the Expositors Collective Podcast. But um, even though I think it was maybe 15 or 20 minutes longer, I think you packed in about 30 or 40 minutes worth of extra bonus added value. So thank you so very much. Thank you for thinking through clearly uh, words that can benefit uh, both me and uh, the broader audience. So I appreciate you. Thank you so very much. All right. I mentioned this uh, last week, but um, just to highlight once more, uh, did you know that in the show notes of each episode, uh, not only can you find links to, uh, to the guest and to their ministries and their resources, um, I also include links to other related episodes of this very show. And so if you're interested in evangelism, if you're interested in apologetics, I've collected about uh, two or three or four links in the show notes uh, for more listening. And uh, I do want to highlight a conversation uh, with Dr. Ian Clary about preaching evangelistic sermons. Uh, In the history of the church, how have preachers uh, invited people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And how can you and I uh, do the same the next time we have an opportunity? So that is a blast from the past. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to leave you with a clip from next Tuesday's episode uh, with Ronnie Martin. And then after him, you're going to hear from Nick Cady inviting you to our September training event, which is taking place in Colorado Springs, Colorado. All right. I hope that this episode, I hope that previous episodes and the next episode and our training event, I hope all of them work together to help you grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. All right, here's Ronnie, uh, followed by Nick. I don't like to be overstudied. Um, And what I mean by that is I don't like to be understudied in the sense that I don't like to study less than I need to. But I also don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to drip, you know, just, I don't want to squeeze every last drop of blood, you know, out (laughs) of the turnip, so to speak. Okay. and I, I think I like to, this is my personality though, in that I like to leave space and I like there to be margin. I like, because there is a moment that's happening uh, between a preacher and the Lord and the congregation that's only going to happen, in my opinion, in that particular moment. Um, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't at work in our prep. I mean, he is for sure. And that's why I'm, I'm all about being prepared. But I also like leaving space and leaving margin and gap to see um, what might emerge, what might surface in the heart in those moments where there is some energy and there is, there is maybe a shift of focus because you're looking in the eyes of somebody in the congregation who is suffering or God draws somebody yeah. five rows back, three chairs in to your mind as you're looking out and you're hitting a particular moment in a passage um, I, I really like to leave space for the possibility of those things uh, to happen. And I feel like if I'm so doggedly prepared, um, it's almost like I'm up there lecturing, just starting at minute one, getting to minute 37, and then just wrapping it up. And I, that for me, and again, the way I'm wired, um, that would yeah. there's, there's an academic quality to that, that I, I see a lot of guys you know, kind of moving in and out of that. I'm just, I'm really 
I'm, I'm very leery of, if that makes sense. This is Nick Cady inviting you to the Expositors Collective Training Weekend coming up on September 17th and 18th in Colorado Springs, Colorado. This will be our first in-person gathering since the pandemic, and we are so excited to get together again for this 24-hour immersive experience, which will help you grow in your private study and your public proclamation of God's Word. We also have an option this time for you to join us online if you aren't able to come in person. This event is open to men and women ages 18 through 34, who want to grow in their ability to preach and teach the Bible. We'll have everything from outlining help to sermon prep resources. We'll be learning in small groups with hands-on application and help from seasoned Bible teachers. You don't want to miss it. September 17th and 18th in Colorado Springs. More information and registration is available on our website, expositorscollective.com. Hope to see you there.